Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. The passage I want to speak to you today is from 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. And I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Before we dig into this passage, let's pray. Our precious Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather here today to worship you and to study your word. We ask, Lord, that you open our hearts and minds as we study your word together, that we may learn what it is that you would have for us in this passage. I ask, Lord, that you would speak to each person listening today, that they would examine where they are in relation to you and your family of believers, and that we would come to a deeper understanding of you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So as you can tell, things are a little bit different today. Uh, I'm going to talk to you about this passage. Uh, this is going to be kind of more like uh, than a lesson than a sermon. I want to give you some background, kind of set the setting a little bit. I want to look at the context of this passage. I want to give you some information about who wrote it why he wrote it, who he wrote it to, and then we'll get into what it is that he said. So who's writing? It's the book of 1 John. It's pretty safe bet it was John, the apostle. John was an old man when he wrote this. John was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he's often referred to as the beloved disciple. John was with Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry when he and his brother James were called from their fishing boat and became followers of Christ. John was an eyewitness to many of the miracles that Jesus performed. He traveled, lived, and ate with Jesus for three years of ministry. He witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. He witnessed the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the feeding of the 5,000, and he saw Jesus walk on the water. He was there. He was there at the Last Supper. And he was the one that Jesus entrusted his mother Mary to as Jesus was dying on the cross. Jesus loved this man. He saw the empty tomb, and he talked with Jesus after the resurrection, and he witnessed Jesus ascending into heaven. John was the only apostle that died of old age. All the others died as martyrs except for Judas, who took his own life. <laughs> According to Tertullian, that was a fun word to look up and learn how to say, Tertullian. Tertullian wrote a book called The Prescription Against Heretics. And according to Tertullian, 
John was arrested following the death of Mary and taken to Rome where he was tried and sentenced to death in boiling oil. Who, you may ask, is Tertullian? I'd want to know. Anytime someone says, according to, they're conveying some sort of authority on that person. And you kind of want to know what it is that he's talking about and whether or not he's a credible source. So, a little sidetrack here. Who was Tertullian? Tertullian was a Christian apologist. He was one of the first. He was born in Carthage, North Africa, around 160 AD. I still say AD. 160 CE. And he grew up with an excellent education in Greek, Latin, philosophy, literature, and law. He converted to Christianity at age 40 and became one of the most revered teachers and authors in the early church. He was one of the most famous church historians. He's been called the father of Latin Christianity and the founder of Western theology. So I guess you could say Tertullian could be considered a credible source. According to Tertullian, John's sentence to be boiled in oil was carried out in front of a crowd of spectators in the Roman Colosseum. But you can probably guess things didn't go quite so well for the Romans. When they plunged him into the oil, it was like a day at the spa. He came, <laughs> he came out completely unharmed. Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. These aren't just Old Testament stories. This story about John, this isn't in the Bible, but it is a credible source. God was still working miracles, and he still works miracles today. The Romans weren't able to kill him, and it said, get this, all the spectators that witnessed that in the Colosseum were converted to Christianity. <laughs> this wasn't good news for Rome. This isn't what they wanted. But since they couldn't kill him, they did the next best thing. They exiled him to the island of Patmos, which John probably thought that was a great idea. Now he can finally get some peace and quiet and rest in his old age. And he got to write a little book called the Book of Revelations for us while he was there. So that's who wrote this passage here in 1 John. Now why is John writing this? John wrote this passage, not the passage, the whole book of 1 John, to refute the growing doctrine of Gnosticism and to encourage believers. Gnosticism was spreading, and John, with the full authority of, of an apostle of Jesus Christ, refuted the teaching of Gnostics by sending the letters that we know of as First and Second John to believers in the early church. These two letters, or epistles, clearly exposed the false teaching of the Gnostics and provided reassurance of believers, or reassurance to believers of their salvation. Okay, here we go. What, you may ask, is Gnosticism? Inquiring minds want to know. Gnosticism still exists today in a variety of contemporary religious movements stemming from Gnostic ideas and systems. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, or knowledge. It's a dangerous heretical doctrine that basically claims that the gospel, as taught by the apostles, is insufficient for salvation. They taught that their own knowledge, the secret knowledge that only they had, using their own reason and wisdom, that was needed as a supplement to what the apostles taught in order for you to be saved. They had a lot of ideas. One of their ideas was that 
the world is divided into two parts. There's the physical world made up of matter, and there's the spiritual world made up of spirit. And they drew a clear line. Everything that's matter or physical is bad, and everything that's spirit is good. And created a problem when Jesus came to, came to earth as a man and God in one. Couldn't wrap their head around that. So they kind of twisted the doctrine a little bit to make it fit their ideas. And what they said was, well, Jesus wasn't really God. Jesus was a guy that when he was baptized, this divine spark or spirit came down at his baptism and inhabited him. That was the Christ, the Christ spirit. So Jesus Christ was this inhabited man, Jesus, by this spark of divinity, the Christ. And he was with Jesus as he went around for his three years doing miracles and, you know, preaching the word of God and all of that. And then, because God, or the Spirit, is too holy and pure to go through something as terrible as a crucifixion, the spark of divinity left Jesus, possibly at Gethsemane, more than likely on the cross before he died. That's a pretty twisted story, if you ask me. But the point here is that once you start down the road of twisting the gospel, you keep coming up against obstacles. And as you come up against these obstacles, then you have to come up with another story or another theory or another piece of reason or secret knowledge of how to get around that. And eventually you end up with something that doesn't resemble what the apostles taught at all. And this gospel that the apostles taught, that Jesus taught about how to get saved, was getting warped and twisted and changed and, and manipulated for their own purposes by these Gnostics all over the place. And we see this happening in religions today. John knew that these people weren't true Christians, and he wrote this letter to warn Christians about them. John said, a person is either a child of God or he isn't. There's no in-between. You can't just make up your own system of religion. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And you don't get to twist what Jesus said to fit your own logic or system of belief. So, 1 John 2, verse 1 says... This is the beginning of, of the chapter. This isn't the verse that we're going to focus on today, but he introduces this chapter. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He says he's writing these things so that you may not sin. He's warning them. But by the grace of God, if you do sin, and we all do, we have an advocate in Christ Jesus who will forgive us and stand in our place at judgment. John's purpose for this letter is to warn the early believers of the dangerous path of the Gnostics, that the Gnostics were taking them down and putting their own spin on what Jesus and the apostles had taught regarding the gospel. So he's warning them. So who is he writing to? Well, he's writing to believers. This letter, it doesn't say specifically who it was written to, 
so we can determine that it's not to a specific church for a local or a specific problem. It was intended to be circulated among all churches, among all believers. This wasn't just a local matter related to one church that needed a little correction and encouragement. This was a dangerous, heretical teaching that was creeping into Christian society all over, corrupting the Word of God and creating confusion and dissension among Christians everywhere. I mean, you want to start a good argument, throw a theological question out there that two devout Christians believe differently and watch the sparks fly. Without the grace of God, people can dig in their heels and, and start coming up with things to defend their argument rather than defend the gospel. And if your focus is defending your position or defending your argument, then you're going to grab whatever you can to support that, whether it's scriptural or biblical or not. And over time, you end up building something that doesn't even resemble where you started. That's how things over time change and get warped. John wrote this letter to set things right. Clear, definitive statement from an authoritative person. And John was just the one to do it. So, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John wrote the letters we know of as First and Second John. He most likely wrote them in Ephesus shortly before he was exiled. And it was his intention that these letters be sent to multiple churches to be read, studied, and forwarded throughout the Christian world. So, what's the message? Well, 1 John has two main themes, to encourage believers in all stages of spiritual life and to refute the false teaching of Gnosticism. Today, our focus, the main focus, is on the encouragement that John gives to the believers. So, now that we've established who and why it was written, let's take a little bit closer look at who it was written to, the believers known as Christians or followers of Jesus or the way. There, there's a lot of different ways of describing them, but the best way is probably believers, believers in Jesus. So here's a few basic things about what believers believe. Christians believe that God is perfectly holy. He's eternal and sinless. They believe that man was created by God in God's image, but because of sin... Man became separated from God. Christians believe that God, as the Creator, loves us, His creation. When He created man, He gave us eternal souls. Cover my microphone there. <laughs> he gave us eternal souls and the responsibility to choose whether or not we would obey Him. Without that choice, we're no different from animals or rocks. Without the choice, we would be unable to commune with him, to worship him, or really to even know him. So God gave us that responsibility as part of his creation. But, probably guessed, man failed in his responsibility to obey God and committed sin. And sin brought judgment, and not just on man, but on the whole of creation. This was no surprise to God. He knew it would happen, but he created us anyway. Sin separates us from God. But God made a way for us to be reconciled to him. First, through the shedding of blood, of the, the shedding of the blood of sacrificial animals. And then through the shedding of blood once and for all by his son, Jesus Christ. Sin is serious and carries a high price, one that only the shedding of blood can pay. 
Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if the wages of sin is death, we all deserve to die. But God, in His mercy, offered to accept a substitute if we repent of our sin. The penalty of sin still has to be paid. That's justice. Sin still has consequences, but we don't have to die if we repent and place our faith in Jesus. Jesus died in our place. Jesus paid the price for our sin. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. His death on the cross was the single payment for all sin. He was the only perfect sacrifice, the only one who could possibly pay for all sin. And then, because he was God, he not only paid for our sin, but he defeated Satan and he rose from the dead, proving that he has the power to overcome sin and reconcile us to God. So all the work is done. Jesus said on the cross before he died, It is finished. All we need to do now is believe on the name of Jesus that he died for our sins. He died in our place so that we don't have to pay the eternal price for our sin. If we believe in Jesus, his virgin birth, his perfect life, his death on the cross, resurrection from the dead, if we believe that he died in our place and paid the price for our sins and we place our trust in him, he will stand before us at judgment and we will be declared innocent. He will save us from the eternal death that we deserve. So when we place our faith in Jesus, we are adopted into his family, not as equal brothers with Christ, as some teach, but as children of God, brothers in Christ, with the full blessing, love, and affection of God the Father. That's what a believer is and what a believer believes. This is who John was writing to, people that believe that. So with these things in mind, being addressed by John as little children... It's not an insult. It's about the best thing that could possibly be said. We are children of God, not children of sin. And as God's children, we are the beneficiaries of his encouragement, his love, his forgiveness, and his patience. So, picture a church family portrait. It's, appro it's appropriate. Yeah, there it is. Monitor down there is not working. It's appropriate that on Father's Day, we look at the generational aspect of Christianity, how it began, how it grows, how it gets passed on from generation to generation. Like in our families, ideally, we have babies. They grow up into children. They struggle into adulthood, battle through the challenges of daily life, and eventually grow old and retire. Each stage of life comes with its own set of challenges. An interesting thing, though, is that although each stage is unique with its own challenges, there's a deep level of interdependence on people in other stages to help us get through the stage that we're in. A baby can't progress to childhood without the help of adults. Can't do it. Adults can't take on the challenges of life without the shared wisdom of those older people who've gone on before them. Imagine as a 30-year-old man who grows up on an island, 
never seen a car, never seen a road, has no idea what a car is. And somebody hands you the keys to an F-150 and a brand new pickup truck. What is this? A box to plant my seeds in? <laughs> it's a kind of a cool ornament to set in front of the house. You wouldn't even know what it was, much less, much less likely what it could be used for. Without the passing on of wisdom, society would never progress. We just have to keep learning the same lessons over and over again. Older people who settle into retirement, if they didn't have the younger generations out working the fields, working in the factories, maintaining society, bringing food to the market, the old people would just sit on the porch and die. You, you can't, you don't have the physical strength and wherewithal to maintain life for an extended period of time once your physical capabilities start to go. And that's one of the things that, one of the beauties about how God made us, why he made us the way that we did, so that we can depend on each other. If, if an old man maintained his strength and his, and his vitality all the way up into, to the point of, you know, 100 years old and, and ready to die, there would be no need to pass on that knowledge or that desire to younger generations. As, as, a, as a guy who's getting a little older, I find myself when I'm out working with my sons, I tend to step back a little bit, let them do the hard work. I'll give them a little direction. I'll point at what, you know, pick that up and move it over here, please, or, you know. And, and, and I respectfully try to do that, and they respectfully do the work. And they show me the respect of being an, an, an older person with maybe a little bit more experience or a little bit more wisdom. And I show them the respect of being younger and stronger and able to do things that I can't anymore. This is how God's plan works. We're all in different stages of life, but we all depend on each other. So, fortunately, God provided us with the ability to pass on information from one generation to the next. In the physical world, we're doing pretty good. Look at all the amazing things that we have today. The things that we have that are built on amazing things that people in previous generations invented. If we had to reinvent the wheel every time we wanted to go to the store, we'd all be walking. I mean, somebody invents something, somebody else sees that and adds to it and adds to it, and society gets better. We pass things on. It works in a physical world. In a spiritual world, not quite so well. The book of Judges is an example of how society flourishes when people obey God, and then when they forget God, when they don't pass on the message of God, then society falls apart. And then life gets really bad, and they repent, and God in his faithfulness forgives them, and life gets better again until they forget again. And you just seem to go through that cycle and that's it's something that's been going on for a long time. And that's one of the things that John is addressing here is, is we need to work hard at, at passing on the spiritual knowledge that we have to younger generations. So when he talks about old men and young men and little children, he's not just talking about men, he's talking about believers, men, women, old, young, 
pass on what you know. Train up others. The church family is made up of many generations of believers. These generations don't have anything to do with physical age. They refer to spiritual life as Christians. They're brand new believers or children in the faith. They can be a child at camp or a grown adult listening to a respected friend share the gospel. Both of them are children in the faith. They're young Christians, people who've accepted Christ and are learning more and more about Jesus as they grow and serve in the community. They're the young men in the faith. Then there's the older, more mature believers who've been in the Christian community for a long time. They've served for many years and have learned a lot about God's faithfulness and love. They are the fathers in the faith. Today's text opens with the phrase, I am writing to you, little children. Think of this as an apostle's letter of encouragement for daily life. Have you ever gotten a letter of encouragement from a friend? i got to sidetrack off my notes here for just a second. Uh, I will in just a minute. Let me, let me get through this little part here, and then i got something I want to tell you. A letter is different from a phone call or a text. It's something that you can hold on to, read over and over again many, many times. It's something you can put in a drawer, and when you just see it sitting there in the drawer, you don't even have to read it. It brings back fond memories. It tells you far more than just the words that are on the paper. It says that you are important enough to somebody for that person to take the time to get a piece of paper, a pen, compose their thoughts, stick it in an envelope, and pay somebody to deliver that message to you. That's a big deal. My wife, June, she gets a letter every four to six weeks from a friend of hers in Canada, and it's always filled with words of encouragement and scripture verses. That friend's been part of June's life for over 30 years, and she still takes the time to remind her that she's loved and that her friend is praying for her. I can't tell you how much that means to her. Here's where I sidetrack. Guess what came in the mail yesterday? As I was leaving here, drafting the final draft of this message, I checked the mail on the way home, and there was a letter from Tanya to June. How does God do that? <laughs> Just his little way of saying, I got you. So imagine a church elder getting a letter of encouragement from the Apostle John. That would be a pretty big deal. The letter would be read, copied, shared, memorized, and used by generation after generation of Christians as a source of encouragement. That letter is in the Bible now because it's not just a nice letter of encouragement from a nice old man. This particular letter is the inspired word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So this message is to believers, people who've heard the gospel and accepted Christ. This isn't a how to get saved letter. It's more of a, you're loved, be aware, there's false teachers in the neighborhood, that kind of letter. So John's message is to remind all believers of the gospel. Our sins are forgiven. There's no secrets here. God said he would forgive us our sins if we called on his name, the name of Jesus. That forgiveness is real and forever. It doesn't change if we have a bad day. 
The gospel message is complete. It doesn't need any special revelation or secret wisdom. We can have the confidence in it and live a life of peace and joy and the knowledge that we are loved by the Father of all creation. So, dear little children, John uses the term little children as a term of endearment to address all believers and as a description of very new believers. At John's age, pretty much all believers could be considered children. He's, he, get this, he was likely the youngest of the 12 apostles that Jesus called, and he lived the longest. When he wrote this, think about it, he was possibly the oldest living person who had known Jesus personally. Excuse me. Keep forgetting I have a microphone on. <laughs> In verses 12 to 14, this part of his letter, John's delivering a heartfelt message of encouragement to his little children. He's addressing all believers because they all have something in common. Their sins are forgiven for his name's sake because of what Jesus did on the cross. All believers are children of God and they can be confident in their salvation. John, the apostle that Jesus loved, is sending them a letter to remind them of that. So when you see that letter sitting in a drawer, sitting on a table, you don't have to read the words. Remember, you're loved and encouraged. Let's look at how John addresses believers at different stages of spiritual life. Remember, we're talking about spiritual life, not physical life. So when he says fathers, fathers are those who've experienced life in God's family over an extended period of time. They've grown to know him well, and they're mature believers. They know the history and the context of God's love for them. John reminds them that they know God is sovereign and eternal. He uses the phrase, from the beginning, referring to both the moment they became believers and to the beginning of all creation. They know God. God's creation, they know that God is unchanging through it all and that he can be counted on. That's who he's referring to when he talks about the fathers. The young men? Young men are those who are growing strong in God's family. They're new believers, but not recent converts. John is encouraging them because though they've heard the truth and believed it, they still struggle mightily with even some of the simple things that mature saints can make look so easy. They are in a pitched battle with Satan. They understand God loves them and died for them, but they sometimes lack the confidence that comes with experience. They know God loves them. It's just that spiritually, they're still in that kind of it's-too-good-to-be-true mode. Well, physically, they're wondering, why is life so hard? We've been told our whole lives, if something is too good to be true, it probably is, and we have a natural suspicion when we hear a message like that. As young believers, they've heard that all they have to do is repent of their sin and have faith in Christ, and he will forgive them and save them. And that kind of sounds too good to be true. And they believe it, and they see it working out around them, and they want to believe it, 
but they keep coming up against obstacles and Satan keeps throwing things at him and he's working hard to say, yep, told you so, it's too good to be true. It's not true, but it is true. And they struggle with that. That's something that mature believers don't struggle with so much anymore. They've, they've gotten past that and accepted that it is true. Young men, they know it's true. It's just life is so hard sometimes. New believers, like young men, they can be full of strength and enthusiasm, but they often lack the wisdom and resources to do things effectively, and they need encouragement from the fathers. As I was working through this passage, I remembered a story my own father told me years ago about what it was like to encourage a group of younger men to work with a group of older men to accomplish something that neither could do alone. A lot of you know, I was born out west, grew up out west. My dad, he lives in, in Utah. And years ago, he was the president of a local backcountry horseman association. Backcountry horsemen utilize what's called single track non-motorized trails. That's a fancy way of saying trails through the mountains that you can't ride a motorbike or an ATV or a Jeep on. No motors, single track, no like two-wheeled or you know, four-wheeled vehicles. So these are your basic mountain trails. They go riding in the mountains and the forests. There's another group that also uses those trails, the Mountain Bikers Association or Mountain Bikers Club. Now these two groups, the things they had in common was their love for the wilderness, the quiet serenity of traveling through the mountains in the open air without the sound of a motor scaring off wildlife before they even get a chance to get close. On a horse or a mountain bike, you can move quietly through the forest and meadows and see all kinds of deer, elk, birds, and other wildlife in their natural habitat. The problem was these two groups had over the years developed animosity between each other. The mountain bikers, they didn't like the horsemen because the horsemen were slow and they tended to block the trail and they're difficult to pass and horses are always leaving little road apple surprises on the trail for the bikers. Horsemen, they didn't particularly like the bikers because they go so fast. Slow down! Especially down the hills. And they spooked the horses if they came around a corner too fast. They wore bright colors and fast bikes. In their opinion, bikers were reckless and dangerous. These two groups had a common problem. Unmaintained trails. It's difficult to keep mountain trails clear of obstacles. Trees can fall, bridges wash out, and large rocks can block the trail anytime because that's just what nature does. It's always changing. Every spring, trails need to be cleared in order to be safe and passable for the general public. And the Forest Service doesn't have the budget or the resources to clear every trail every year. And over time, some of the trails, they could get really bad. Some of you have been to Detroit, seen some of the roads down there. You know what I mean when I say roads, and in the case of some mountain trails, they just aren't safe if they aren't maintained. The solution was for these two groups to work together. If they could set aside their animosity and recognize that they each had something to contribute, they could make a difference for the betterment of the wilderness for everyone to enjoy. Horsemen, typically older men without the physical strength, of a young man, but they had horses and they could carry chainsaws and gas cans and crowbars and other equipment. 
The young bikers, they were physically strong. They didn't have the ability to carry much on their bikes because it's kind of hard to carry a chainsaw and ride a bike through the mountains. But they were strong. I mean, you kind of got to be to pedal a bike up one of those mountains. If the horsemen brought the equipment and the bikers brought the muscle and they worked together, together they could clear the trails. They agreed to set aside their differences and they worked together for the next several years. They had annual outings. They'd take a trip every spring, choose a trail through the mountains that they could clear, and the two clubs became friends. And as far as I know, they still work together today. This is an example of what John was talking about when he encourages fathers by telling them that they know him who is from the beginning. They know God. They know God's ways. And they can disciple younger believers in how to grow and serve in the community of believers. When he tells the young men that they are strong and that God abides in them, he's telling them that they should be encouraged because God is faithful. They can learn from the fathers a few things that only come with experience. God will see them through the trials of life as they grow stronger each day, and he's provided them with a, value, with a valuable resource to help them. Children. The children John is referring to are those who are new to life in God's family. John is reminding them of what they've learned about the Father. They know him. They know that he loves them. And that because of Jesus, he forgives them. That's about all they know. But that's really all they need to know right now. Children, both physical and spiritual, are very important and, sp and special to God. Matthew 19, 14 says... But Jesus said, Let the children alone, and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. A child of God can be any age. They are to be cherished and nurtured as they grow in the faith. So let me ask you a question. Do you see yourself in a portrait of God's family? You are in this family if you're a child of God, no matter what your age is. So here's a few things to think about. Think about the steadfast love of God the Father. Mature Christians, they know God and can count on Him. They've come to faith. They've trusted. They've persevered. They've dug in and learned. They understand that He's the source and author of all things, and they know God intimately. And they know that they will spend eternity with Him. New believers are believers, the same as mature believers. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says... For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. As a young believer, you don't earn your way into heaven. Salvation is by faith through the grace of God alone. The thief on the cross in Luke 23, verses 42 and 43 said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. All believers, even the newest ones, they've won the war. They've overcome the evil one. But battles still remain. Satan is already defeated, but he can still cause great harm. So, John writes this letter 
of encouragement to continue the fight against sin with confidence. As a family of believers, we can help each other by gathering together for worship, to study, and to live life together. Believers can do so much more as a community than we can alone. We can't all go to Africa as a missionary, but we can all support the guy who does go. We all need encouragement. What child doesn't respond to encouragement from a loving father? Today's passage, 1 John 14, the second part of verse 14 says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. He's encouraging them. They have doubts. We all have doubts every now and then. And and what is it like to have a respected elder or a father, somebody say, young man, you're strong. You can do this. God is with you. You've already... You've already won when you trusted Jesus. All this trouble in life, it's just details. It's just an opportunity for you to gain experience and share with others what God has done. The battle's won. John 15, 7 says, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. Trust God. He'll be there for you. Romans 8, 14 to 17 says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons and daughters of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also. Heirs of God fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with them, so that we may also be glorified with him. This message is for all believers, sons, daughters, children, men, women, and even grandparents. Romans 8, 38 and 39 tells us, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ our Father. Basically, I think that covers everything. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. New believers can be reassured that God is with them and they don't need to worry about being expelled from that family. It's not too good to be true. They're in. All believers are strong in Christ in the daily battle with sin. And they can have confidence because they have the word of God in them. And they've been redeemed. So, what's necessary to become part of God's family? It's a good question. There's only two things required. Repentance and faith. In order for us to repent... You need to understand that sin is offensive to God. And according to Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need to acknowledge our sin and turn from that life of sin. In order for us to have faith, we need to believe that God loves us and has saved us from sin as a gift for those who place their trust in Jesus. We can't earn it. 
or we'd claim that glory for ourselves. And that's just not how it works. It's not faith if it's a, a checklist that you can accomplish on your own. We need to understand that while Jesus has won the war against sin and hell, we still live in a fallen world, and there's daily battles against temptation and sin to fight. We need to understand that our Father in heaven, who loves us and sent his Son to redeem us, he will be with us all the time. He's there to comfort us when we're discouraged, soothe us when we're frightened, encourage us when we're timid, and correct us when we make mistakes, and best of all, to forgive us when we confess. This brings us right back to one of the very first verses we learn as new believers, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loves us so much that he sent his Son to make a way for us to be reconciled with him. Way back in 1668, a guy named Thomas Watson, and I'm not going to give you Thomas Watson's history, but Thomas Watson wrote, The two great graces essential to a saint in this life are faith and repentance. These are the two wings by which he flies to heaven. Without faith, repentance is meaningless. This is me, not him. Without faith, repentance is meaningless. Without repentance... Faith is worthless. If you repent of your sins and have faith in Jesus, you are saved and you're adopted into the family of God. So, what's your next step in the process of maturing in God's family? Well, depends where you're at. Have you been adopted into the family of God? If not, you need to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. We can help if you'd like someone to talk to. Just let us know. Are you a new believer, a little child, spiritually? Someone who has recently come to faith in Christ and are wondering what to do next? If so, are you studying your Bible? Are you involved in a small group? Attending church regularly and being fed by the Word of God? Are you getting to know God and learning to trust Him? Are you sharing with others what you are learning? Are you a young believer, someone growing strong in the faith? If so, consider taking the next step in serving God. Are you participating in serving in your local, in your local church? Are you sharing your faith with others? Are you experiencing God's faithfulness and the joy that comes with recognizing His daily blessings and watching Him work in your life? Now when I say recognize His daily blessings, that's everything. From when you step out the door in the morning and you see, I, I love early mornings in May and June. It's so beautiful outside. God blesses us in so many ways. And he's always doing things that, that unless we're looking for it, we don't even recognize it. How did that letter show up yesterday? The day I wrote the part about have you ever gotten a letter from a close friend? Then two hours later, I drive home, and there's a letter from a close friend in the mailbox. As a young believer, share those things. God is awesome, and he's doing things all the time. Open your eyes and recognize it. Are you a mature believer? Somebody who has experienced God's grace and seen his faithfulness? 
Have you been through the battles with them? Possibly have the scars to prove it. Share your testimony. Be like John and call together the little children of God and tell them what he's done for you. Stay strong and encourage others because without your guidance, we could all just get lost in our good intentions. Most of all, pray. Speaking of prayer, let's close in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the letter of encouragement that you inspired John to write. Thank you for the family you've provided all believers, from the little babies to the old men and women, from the new believers to the faithful mothers and fathers. We love you, God, and we are so grateful that you first loved us. Bless us and help us to love and encourage one another as we grow in your grace and love. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.